Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. So today we're gonna we're gonna be in Ephesians three, the first half of Ephesians three. We're gonna continue our ser- our citizens series, the new man and the new society, out of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And today uh, we're gonna be talking about the impact of citizenship, the impact of citizenship out of Ephesians 3. Um, As we've been going through Ephesians, we're going to kind of recap where we are right now because that's feasible to do because there's only been two chapters, so I can do that without drowning you. Uh, But I just, I hope that as we've been going through Ephesians, you've caught a little bit of the heart of the Apostle Paul. You know, He's such a great letter writer, and we have, to re- we have to remember that these are actually letters inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's actually from someone to someone, from a person to a person. Um, so there's personal tendencies that are, that are in the fabric of these letters. And Paul just has this tendency to, and we're going to look at it soon, to just digress and go into all these wonderful truths. And he's very urgent, and he just has this has this heart of clarity for his hearers. He really wants his hearers to catch the things that he's putting forward. And I was trying to remember a time in my life when somebody really wanted me to get uh, the point of something. And there's been a lot of times, but only one was funny, so I thought I'd share it. Um, There was a time when I was uh, an assistant youth pastor in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, where I grew up. Sunshine State. I've been missing it this winter. Um, But I was... I was on staff as an assistant youth pastor at a church there, and there was uh, another girl who was on staff as well. We were, we were kind of co-assistant youth pastors, and like over the course of like this summer, um, I kind of developed a crush on this, on this girl, right? Um, obviously, I wasn't married to Jess yet or anything like that. I was single. And um, so I worked up the courage one day um, to approach her, and talk to her about that. Don't laugh. It takes a lot of courage. Um, and, I, and I approached her. And I just, I made my feelings known. I said, so what do you think about that? And she straight up turned me down. You know, and it was like, okay, that's cool. She's like, well, I'm flattered. I don't feel that way. I was like, how is that possible? No, okay, I'm kidding. kidding. <laughs> Does not compute. No. Uh, and... And then she, but she, she really had, she really had the, the heart to make this clear to me. So, so after we were done with our conversation, she said to me, um, hey, I, ha- I have a question. I was like, yeah, what's up? She goes, her exact words, uh, I just wanted to be clear. I didn't leave any room for hope, did I? I'll let you enjoy my pain for a second. While you... And I remember sitting there being like, no, no, we're good. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not unclear on anything. I appreciate it. Thank you. Obviously, everything worked out to my benefit now with my beautiful wife, Jess. But Love you, baby. No. But, but that... It's, it's that heart of like, hey, I, I just want to make sure you guys get what I'm saying, right? That I think Paul displays in the letters that he writes in the New Testament. He, he cannot go to the next subject. He's, he's got to digress and go back to this one thing just to make sure that the Ephesians understand these certain things. And I think if we don't have that type of tone in mind as we look at the text, then 
I think we miss uh, uh, somewhat of the measure of the urgency of the Apostle Paul and uh, his desire for the Ephesians to catch what he's talking about. So, with that in mind, just to be clear, uh, let's take a look back. I'm never going to hear the end of that story now. But let's take a look back at some of the things that Paul has uh, summarized and began to talk about in Ephesians up to this point. One of the things that he's done in, in the first uh, several verses of chapter 1, is he, he began enumerating the spiritual blessings in Christ for the believer. You know, that phrase, in him, in Christ, in him, in him, in him, in that first chapter of Ephesians, just laying out the innumerable riches of being in Christ uh, for the believer that we could preach a whole year on, um, and, and how great it is to be a part of that. He's got an intense desire right off the bat for the Ephesians to catch that. He, he also, uh, and this is something that Paul often does in, in his epistles is he begins a prayer. He starts a prayer uh, for the Ephesians in verse 15 of chapter 1. And it culminates with, with desiring that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And he, he, it's kind of cool to think that in a letter, he's, he's beginning to pray for them. Remember, letter writing at that time is not like email writing for us. Uh, letter writing was, was literally the means of communication. Uh, so everything that he wants to do for them, say to them, everything is going into this letter. So he actually begins a prayer for them. Um, he also begins then to systematically move the believer from the place of being separated from God to the place of being a citizen in the people of God. So, uh, the, and this, so it, it's like it all start being separated from God. And some, he says, the Gentiles, are even kind of like separated and then some from God. All are separated from God. But the Gentiles are also separated from Israel, who are the people of God. And this separation exists. But he starts to talk about how in Christ, the Gentiles have been brought near. And all have been made alive and saved by grace through faith who are in Christ. So all believers being brought into that place of being in Christ, and being built, as we see at the end of chapter 2, into a holy temple in which the Spirit of God has his dwelling. And we're going to go back to these verses a couple of times today, but at the end of verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 21, in Christ the whole building, that is us, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So part of what Paul has done in the first two chapters of Ephesians is he's taken you and I as believers, he's taken the Ephesians as his hearers from that place of being Gentiles, separated from Israel, separated from God, into the place of being in Christ and being built as the church into a holy temple that houses the dwelling place of God. That's a lot to cover in two chapters but it's a, I'm personally pretty excited that uh, that's where we've been brought to. It gives me a sermon to preach today. I drew the dreaded uh, leading worship and uh, preaching the sermon. So I downloaded the sermon and we're going to see how it goes. Um, but, that, but that church is the new society. It's, it's sort of the heart of our subtitle of our series, um, The New Man and the New Society. Any Karl Marx fans out there? All right, a couple of you. So... So Karl Marx talked about the new man and the new society. I would venture to say that this goes even further to an even more revolutionized new man and an even more revolutionized uh, new society. So let's pick up in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, because uh, 
Paul, he's, he's kind of culminated what we've talked about, and now he's kind of kind of go into his physical circumstances and go back into praying for the Ephesians. So in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... And we'll pause there for a second, because Paul actually was physically a prisoner in Rome when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. So he's, he's physically imprisoned in the capital of the Roman Empire. He's literally Nero's prisoner. But sovereignly, Paul knows that because of the gospel, he's really the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's got that kind of mindset of the sovereignty of God. And he's there because of his advocation and support of the gospel to the Gentiles. This was a radical idea at the time. And we'll go into this a little more. But, but the fact that Jesus was a Jew, the gospel was, a, was outworked in the Jewish community in Jerusalem. The idea of Gentiles being brought into that, I know we kind of like think that that's all great today and it's not a big deal. It was a huge deal back then. And Paul advocated for that brushed up wrongly against the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem, was imprisoned in Jerusalem and made his appeal to Rome. But while you appeal to Rome, you're in prison in Rome. Make sense? Kind of like the Supreme Court. Although you don't go to prison when you appeal to the Supreme Court. Bad illustration. But so Paul literally is a prisoner in Rome. And he begins this prayer again where he's going to say, For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. You can hear what he's about to say. And he actually picks it up later in verse 14, which we'll discover next week. For this reason I kneel before the Father for whom all the family in heaven. And he's going to go into that prayer. But he stops. In most of your Bibles, I think you'll probably see a hyphen right after for the sake of you Gentiles in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. There is no Greek word for that hyphen. He is about to digress again. And I respect that because I digress a lot. Um, But remember, this is letter writing at the time. And when Paul hits a moment, he can't hit the delete button. He's written what he's written. And he's he's like, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I just got to go into this one more time. That's what he's going to do for the next 12 verses. From chapter 2, or verse 2 to verse 13 of chapter 3. And I believe that he digresses into three distinct uniquenesses, which is not technically a word, but if from a couple weeks ago, Steve can make up the phrase greater greatness of grace, then I get to make up uniquenesses. Um, That's how we're rolling today. So can we take a second in that context and let's read the first 13 verses of of chapter 3. Is that happiness? Cool. I know it's a chunky part of scripture, but I believe in reading chunky parts of scripture. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1. I'm kidding. So, chapter 3, verse 1 of Ephesians. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel, verse 7, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And after that digression, Paul will go back into the prayer that he began in verse 1. So, let's take a look at those three uniquenesses, my made-up word. The first thing that I think Paul talks about is, is a unique call. It's a unique call that applies specifically to him as the writer, as the speaker to the, Ephesians, to the Ephesian people. He takes a moment to remind the Ephesian people of his personal calling. He is called to this gospel. He is called to the Gentiles. And he's referencing something here that they already know. They already know about how Saul of Tarsus met the Lord Jesus in a pretty memorable way. Uh, on the Damascus Road, got knocked off his horse, and the radiant risen Jesus says, um, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And later in, later in Acts 9, in that same chapter, uh, the Holy Spirit re- reveals that Paul is actually his chosen instrument to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to take this revolutionary gospel to the people who aren't even of Israel. This is blowing minds back then. So let that rest for a second. So Paul is referencing that. He's like, you know who is writing you this letter. And it's not because I'm awesome. It's just because I'm called. So he's got a sense of revelation. He had that encounter with Jesus. And in in Acts 9, as I mentioned, that incredible conversion and, commis- and commissioning under Ananias, the Holy Spirit, choosing him as the instrument. And he is called to the Gentiles. This turns a huge corner, as I was saying, in God's plan. That the gospel is going to go forth to the people who are not of Israel. Paul also gets a sense of the privilege of this call. He's got a sense of the preciousness of the mystery of what he's going to go into in just a minute. He's got a sense of this has been revealed to me. It's been revealed to me. I'm the carrier of this. And again, I hope you don't hear arrogance in this passage. I mean, he ends up saying in verse 7 and 8, he's less than the least. So Paul's not saying hooray for me, but he's saying I do have a privilege. And the the idea of the gospel for the Gentiles has come to pass. You know that one of my favorite quotes ever is from Victor Hugo, uh, the author of Les Miserables, where he says, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And the idea of the gospel going to the Gentiles, ordained by God, had come. And Paul was the man. Paul was the instrument. So with that... He's got a sense of obligation, obviously, a holy obligation. He, you, you, you hear that. We've already talked about his tone, his desire for clarity, his desire that nothing be missed by his readers. Um, he wants to expound on the fullness of being in Christ, which is what he says in, in, in verse 3 of chapter 3, where he says, The mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. He's like, I've already started talking about this. In the first couple of chapters here. About what it means to be in Christ. This mystery has been revealed to me. I have to share it with you. And then lastly as we've mentioned. It's all based in grace. It's all based in grace for Paul. I don't believe many people have a keener sense of grace. Than the apostle Paul did. And so in, in, in chapter 8. 
uh, seven and, uh, sorry, verse 7 and 8. I'm getting chapters and verses messed up today. There is no Ephesians chapter 7, so ignore me. Uh, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power, although I'm less than the least of all God's people. No pride, just revelation, privilege, and obligation to share, all based in grace. Um, when Back in November, Jess and I found out that we were expecting our, our third child. And um, one of the unique things about this time for us was because we live here in Chicago and both of our families live down in Florida, we, with our first two girls, we've never gotten to tell our families face-to-face that we were pregnant. It's always had to be by phone call or FaceTime, which doesn't technically count. Um, but we've never gotten to be in the room to tell them. But because we were going down to Florida for Christmas and we knew in late November, we buckled down and kept our mouths shut for a month and told Amelia, our four-year-old, our oldest, that she could be the one down in Florida to tell her grandparents, tell her cousins that we were expecting our third child. You would have thought that she was going to deliver the State of the Union. She was so excited. But the reason why she was excited was wrapped up in all the reasons why I think the Apostle Paul is excited. She's got unique revelation. She knows something that she gets to make known. And she is on pins and needles trying to, trying to not do it. And let me tell you something. I have not seen such pure joy as when the room shut up, looked at her, and she got to say, mommy's got a baby in her tummy, to a room full of grandparents and cousins. I mean, it's just, it was great. And I think that's part of the sense of what the Apostle Paul gets in that unique call. He has a unique call through no fault of, of his own. He's like, I'm the guy who needs to impart this to you because it's been specially revealed to me. So that unique call, I believe, is to impart a unique mystery. This, uh, so far in Ephesians, Paul, Paul as we said, has said, this is being in Christ. This is being brought near to Christ. And now, it's like he says, come close. I've got a mystery to reveal. Gather around. Remember that TV show, Gather Around? You ever watch that where the guy drew in chalk while he narrated? Nobody? You remember, Kate? Nobody's in their early 30s here? No, I'm kidding. But it's that, it's that sense of like, hey, this is special. Gather around. I've got a mystery. Now, I think we need to pause with the word mystery for a second because our English understanding of the word mystery often implies something dark and brooding, something unknowable, something that's got to kind of be figured out or has a chance of not being figured out, um, puzzling, ununderstandable, which is also not a word. Uh, the modern hearer of, Efe- of the word mystery in Ephesians, I think, is in danger. We're in danger with our understanding of thinking, this is something I'm not going to get. This is something that is going to remain distant from me, and I just kind of have to be comfortable with it. I, I think we need to get to the fact that to the Greek hearers in Ephesus, this is not what mystery meant. If you guys are taking the how to understand the Bible or how to read the Bible for all it's worth course, you know that good, good exegesis, good exegeting of Scripture, the first thing, figure out what the hearers of this book, what the hearers of this letter, what it was meaning to them. We've got to start there. And mystery, the word mystery from Paul to his hearers is actually a good word. The Greek word mysterion indicates something that's not dark, brooding, distant, and unknowable, but it actually indicates a secret truth that's been opened. It's now been revealed, and people can be initiated into it because it's been revealed. 
That's what a mystery was to the Ephesians hearers. So it's knowable. It's completely holdable. It's a truth into which we can be initiated. And to Paul's hearers, the fact that he has a mystery to share with them is good news. It really is. And I think this has got to be good news for us. It makes it a little more exciting, right? Not like, oh, well, I guess I can check out for the next eight verses. No, it can be known. And so what is this mystery? Let's, let's look in, uh, in verse 6. It's, he lays it out very plainly. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs with Israel. Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. As I've said before, the fact that the Gentiles are heirs with Israel is huge. It is, un, it is unspeakably mind-blowing at that time. Because the Gentiles, remember, were not just far from God. They were separated from Israel. They were, John Stott calls it a double separation in his commentary, which I'm shamelessly taking a lot from. But it's a double separation. And now they've been zoomed into the promise of God's kingdom. They're like, they're fully heirs. Fully members of, of one body. That's not just good news to the Ephesians. It's good news to most of you and me. This is good news. And this is the mystery. And it's not unknowable. It's been revealed. So now the Gentiles are in the promise because what does salvation come through? Chapter 2, verse 8. We've been saved by grace through faith. And that is everybody. That Jesus is, that salvation from Jesus is everybody. And this is the culmination, actually, of what God's promise to Abraham, the father of Israel, the father of the Jewish people, was. That all the nations would be blessed through you. God's intent was always that the fullness of the world would see the display of his glory and would come to know him. And now... That's actually divinely ordained to come to pass with the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are in the promise because of this equal opportunity gospel. And to the Ephesian church and to you and me, it's such good news. It's the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel that all nations will be blessed by him. And, and I just want to make sure that we're not hearing. I think sometimes there's a temptation here to downgrade Israel with this. Nobody is downgrading Israel. What Paul is doing is upgrading the Gentiles. Does that make sense? It doesn't say, verse 6 doesn't say Gentiles are heirs instead of Israel. That'd be one thing. It says the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Okay? Can we just settle that? And we're all, I'm in Christ, you're in Christ. I don't know if you can figure this out, but I'm Scotch-Irish. I'm not Jewish. I know, I didn't know if you could figure out what I am with my pink rosy cheeks. But so, it's not a downgrade to Israel. It's an upgrade to the Gentiles. And this is why in the second half of verse 8, Paul, is, he just can't, he can't not preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That Greek word for unsearchable literally means unable to be tracked out. It's like, it's, it's, it's almost like a geographical term. It, 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 it implies like this vast frontier and it's like literally able, unable to be mapped. It's, it, we know it exists, but we just will never see the end of it. It's probably the closest that we have today in our understanding is how we think of the universe. Like, man, we could just never get to the end of it. That's the unsearchable riches of Christ that Paul feels compelled to, to, 
to share with the Gentiles. And so that, therefore, why does Paul digress in these letters? Why does he write these letters? Because literally, the riches of Christ is something that he could, you could wake him up at 3.30 in the morning, slap him once, pour water on his face, and he would have some angle of the riches of Christ that he would want to talk about. It's, they're literally that unsearchable. And it's, he, he can preach it next to any topic. He can digress into it any time. And he always wants to go back into it, no matter if he's talking to you about something else. You, you see it. He always wants to go back into it. So we need to get this understanding of this mystery today. As modern hearers and modern readers of Ephesians, we need to get this understanding that this is knowable. It's holdable. We've been initiated into it. The gospel is for the Gentiles too. We are in Christ. All of Ephesians 1 and 2 applies to you and me. By grace, through faith. That's the mystery. It's not unknowable. It's known. And I've just been knocked over by the chance to know that. Again, a fresh, a fresh revelation. So Paul, he's, he describes this unique call. And he describes this unique mystery that he has to declare. And he's going to culminate it in a unique people that is revealed. A unique call, a unique mystery, and a unique people. God's revelation to Paul isn't just the mystery. And the mystery is great that the Gentiles are included in the gospel. But begin to catch this. God is revealing to Paul how the mystery is going to be outworked. See, again, to you and me, the fact that the Gentiles are in the gospel, we're like, well, yeah, we always have been. But not only was that an earth-shattering idea back then, But the first question for any hearer of that with any knowledge of Jesus and the gospel was not just, oh my gosh, how is that possible? Their question is, how, how, how is that outworked? How are the Gentiles into the gospel? Well, do they have to be circumcised now too? Do they have to, do they have to keep these, how, what's the outworking of that? But so how are the riches of Christ made known and manifested in the world if that's what God used to do solely through the people of Israel? How would God administer this mystery that's been hidden? Paul even says it's been hidden till now. And that's not God being mean. That's just God's prerogative. God's timing of revealing what God is doing right now. What's being shaken up in the heavenly realms by this equal opportunity gospel. This mystery needs an administration. And so what is the administration of the mystery? Or shall we say who is the administration of the mystery? Well, let's look at verse 10. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. The administration, the outworking of the mystery of the unsearchable riches of God, gospel for all, equal opportunity gospel, the outworking of that is the church. Sorry if that hurts anybody's feelings. It's right there. It's the church. And boy, we didn't pick that, did we? God picked it. What's he thinking? But it's right there. God's plan has always been, from the beginning of time, we see this in Scripture, God's plan has always been to have a unique people that displays his glory. That displays his glory literally to the entire world. And he displayed it for a long time through the people of Israel exclusively. 
right? They were the carriers of God's presence. They were the carriers of, of the holiness of God. They were intended to live lives in which the mystery of knowing God was outworked to the entire world. And the unsearchable riches of Christ, Paul argues now, are being displayed by the people who are in Christ. And that's everybody who knows Christ now, the church. This is earth-shattering. This, is, this, this literally, I hope you get a sense of the corner that's being turned here in the, in the, in the intentions of God and the purposes of God. And God's excited about it, which is why he has Paul proclaiming the mystery of this, that Christ grows the church of Christ and that that church displays the splendor of God's glory. It's not theory. It was happening then. It's happening now. So as I mentioned, it's, it's always, I mean, just, just get a sense of this for a second. One of, the thing, one of the phrases that I think we can skip over a lot in Ephesians is how many times Paul references the eternal purpose of God. That he'll list off these wonderful things about being in Christ and these, these wonderful things about how we've been redeemed and all that we've received. And he throws that, that phrase in there because this was according to God's good purpose. And I, I for one, am in danger of, of just kind of skipping over that phrase and being like, that's awesome that God wanted that. Tell me more about what I get. Think about this. Let's follow God's purpose for a second. Back to Ephesians 1. All the things that he purposed in us, in Christ, Every spiritual blessing. And Paul, Paul ties it up with, this is in accordance with the good pleasure of his will. This is in accordance with his eternal purpose. It's always been God's intention for you and me to be in Christ. And then, then where else does he say it? It's the eternal purpose there in verse 11. That God would use the church. God has eternally purposed us to corporately display Christ to the world. That's part of his eternal purpose too. And he has done it all in Christ. Do you catch a sense of the, the amazing intricacy of that? That it's not simple, but it's clear. You and I, according to God's good pleasure of his will, have received lavish redemption. And the church has received the commission to be the display of God's glory according to his good purpose. He's done it all in Christ and revealed it now in the church. It's mind-blowing. At least it is to me. And honestly, this is, this is what I love. This is where Paul, I think, um, gets a little, he gets a little cheeky here. Go back to verse 10. Um, remember, God's intent, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, um, God is somewhat showing off the awesomeness of his plan. He is. He's showing off. Made, listen to that phrase, made known to the rulers and authority, authorities in the heavenly realms. Literally, the angels and principalities in the heavenly realms are marveling at the impressive wisdom of God in the outworking of his mystery. And their minds are blown. How is that, how can that mystery be outworked that the Gentile, that, that the gospel is for all, that, that, and now God is outworking it through this imperfect, varied, cultured, handsome and beautiful group of people called the church. How is God doing that? What wisdom God has. He is literally blowing their minds daily and they return it to him in praise. The heavenly, in the heavenly realms. 
you are cause for praise in the heavenlies from the angels to God. That's awesome. So they're seeing a Christ-indwelt, spirit-filled people manifesting the glory and the kingdom of the Father here in this earthly realm. God's plan, the mystery, outworked with God's administration, the church, through God's wisdom displayed to the heavenlies so that it can be returned to God in his, for his glory. What an awesome, awesome God to eternally purpose that and to let us partner with it. So all this, all this purposing from God, I, I think, results, results in a pretty awesome privilege on our part. And we see that in verse 12. In him that is in Jesus and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You, can, can I just say, I think sometimes we cheapen that a little bit, that we it's like, you know, it's also written in Hebrews and like, oh, I can boldly approach the throne of grace and that's awesome. And man, Jesus made the way and I'm kind of feeling good about that. Can I just say, it's not just that Jesus made the way, it's that God eternally purposed you to be in Christ, the church to display his glory. And because we're in that eternal purpose, he has always wanted you to be able to come before his throne with freedom and confidence. It's not just, I think that'd be a good idea. He wanted it forever. So I mean, get a sense of how God is just doing this to us. Just come on, come on, come on, come on. It's not just a nice, cool, bumper sticker Christian truth. I boldly approach the throne because I'm awesome. And hopefully this bumper sticker will save me from speeding tickets. No, it's been eternally purposed. So with all that context, then Paul in verse 13, he starts to take that turn back to the prayer back to the prayer that he's going to offer for the Ephesians, and he starts to briefly take the turn back to his physical circumstances. He says, I ask you, therefore, and therefore always means in light of what's come before. I ask you, therefore, in light of all this, I am the prisoner of the gospel. I am here to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, which is the mystery of God and the unsearchable riches of Christ, and I'm here to proclaim that the outworking of it is the church. In light of all those things, please don't be discouraged about my sufferings because I'm really not worried about it. And therefore, your glory. Again, even a statement like that is weightier. We look at that and we go, oh, man, yeah, suffering for the gospel. Paul, whoo, he was special. Ooh. No, he just had a realization of the eternal purpose of God. <laughs> and we don't, I think this, this is a point where we could digress ourselves into a theology of suffering for us in this nation, which we don't really have that much of, but it's not the time to do that here. But it is the time when we can understand the context in which we would do that. And that is the mystery of Christ and the outworking of it in the church. So I think, I think that this chapter kind of comes to a few incredible culminations. Um, again, which I've shamely, shamelessly ripped off from John Stott. Not all of them, but more than half of them. No. <laughs> but one is that the church is central to history. You get that sense? History is kind of written uh, from the perspective of kings, queens, battles, nations, movements. But the church is actually, is actually the mechanism that is central to history in God's story of redeeming humanity. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, it's an ordained, it's an ordained society. 
And the church is essential. It's literally how God has chosen to reveal and administer the great unsearchable riches of Christ. And remember, we didn't pick us. <laughs> God did. We, we didn't pick now. God did. So no room for pride, but also no room for standing on the sidelines and checking out because God picked us, God picked now. No complaining. It's 2014, you're you, we're here, you know Christ. Write it down. So I would say enjoy being purposed. Can we enjoy that as a church, as, as believers in Christ together? Don't fight God on this. <laughs> it's his eternal purposes, which I don't know if you notice, he's pretty good at bringing to pass. The church not only is central to history, it's central to the gospel. Can I read? I'm just going to read from John Stott. Cool guy. No. But listen, just, just get a sense of this quote here. The good news of the unsearchable riches of Christ, which Paul preached, is that Jesus died and rose again, not only to save sinners like me, though he did, but also... To create a single new humanity, the church. Not only to redeem us from sin, but also to adopt us into God's family. Not only to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to one another. Thus, here we go, the church is an integral part of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the new society as well as the new life. Yeah? The gospel is not just, it's not just Jesus saved me. It's the outworking of that mystery that God has created a new people. Church displays the glory of God also tangibly to the world. Man, just in light of what we just talked about, about God's purposing of the church to reveal the mystery, go back now and read chapter 2. Verse 21 and 22, in him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Man, those verses take on a whole new weight, don't they? That's an, that's an eternally purposed church, housing the dwelling of God, displaying it to the, to the nations of the world. That's awesome. Can't skip over those verses now. Not accusing of you, you, you of doing that. But. And I think lastly, and this is so as much to me as it is to anyone else. We have to take God's view of the church. You got to take God's view of the church. I'm not saying you got you to gotta love everything that the church does around every corner. And can I just say, nobody, nobody has gotten more cynical and hardcore walked away from the idea of the church more than I have. Seriously. If you know me, you know I'm a cynical son of a mother. And God has done a love story in my life of bringing me back to falling in love with the church. Not because we're awesome, but because God has eternally purposed it. And I need to take God's view of the church and every time that I in my life have taken how hard it is to love the church to, to, to God, because I can approach him with freedom and confidence, but when I take it to him and I'm so upset, he says, yeah, it's kind of like what it's like for me to love you, James. Man, we got to take God's view of the church. It's not our model, but it's God's. 
It's not our eternal purposes bringing our mystery of our unsearchable riches. It's God's mystery being outworked God's way about God's unsearchable riches in Christ. We got to work to love the church. And we don't resent the church. We are the church. So be the church that is beautiful and God displaying as he intended it to be. Our president stood in this city when he was campaigning. And what, remember what he said? He said, we must be the change that we want to see. We must be the church that we want to see. So if you got an issue with why things are happening or not in the church, be the church that Christ intended us to be. You know, we're, we're almost, we're, we're at time, but um, we're going we're gonna to enjoy communion together. Closing my laptop, that's a good sign. But I just hope you guys catch a sense that this is, not, this is not what we do on a Sunday morning. This is not just where we come. This is who we are, eternally purposed by God. And I, I, I kind of feel that in this moment as we enjoy communion together, can we, can we sort of catch a new revelation of that together as a family as well? That we are remembering and celebrating the body and sacrifice of Christ. And we're not doing it alone in our room which in and of itself is fine. We're doing it together as a family, as the church, eternally purposed. So in a second, Vanessa's going to play, and um, I just want to invite you, there's a table here and a table here, just to come in, in your time, and you can go back to your seat with the bread and the cup, and you can take it on your own time, and I will, um, I'll come up and, and take us from there. But let's just do that, and let's enjoy that as a family, as the church, the purpose church. Yeah? Let me pray for us and we'll go. Lord, I just thank you so much for your plans, your eternal purposes. Thank you that they're above us, but they involve us and we just see your goodness in them. So I pray, Lord, that even now as we take the bread and the cup, Lord Jesus, that we would honor you in our hearts and honor you together as brothers and sisters and take pleasure in that. Take pleasure and joy in being purposed together to display the greatness of Christ. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name.